Well, good morning. And as we do each week, would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. That's page 841 on a blue pew Bible in front of you if you don't have one, or feel free to pull it up on your device. So there is a trend, uh, maybe a community fad, or uh, maybe just a hobby that has really become popular uh, in recent years. And and from what I can tell, this hobby uh, consists of two things, um, paint and wine. (laughs) Have you seen this? Uh, It it seems like it's really kind of taken off. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's these stores or studios where uh, groups of people come in for a night for for painting and drinking wine. Uh, Ridgewood got one a couple of years ago. It's called Pinot's Palette. Palais. Palette? Palette. We're going palette. All right, Pinot's Palette. Now, I've I've never done a class. I've I've seen, know several people who have and really enjoy it. I've... um, also seen a ton of more people on social media share their experience, and, and, and again, from what I can tell, could be wrong, uh, this whole class follows an instructor, uh, step by step through a painting. And, and it seems typically of some kind of outdoor scene of nature, right? You have trees and mountains and birds and a moon and some stars and something of that variety, and then everybody takes a group picture at the end. And they show their painting, and, it's, and, and um, to be honest with you, I'm always kind of impressed. Like, I'm like, can anybody like, just do that? Like, my painting capped in kindergarten, and I don't think I've ever improved since then. Um, like, would, I, would mine look anything like that if I went? I don't know. One day I'm going to Pino's Palette. But um, here's the thing. Each person painted a same scene, if you will. But everyone's is just a little bit different if you look close right? The colors are kind of a different shade. Some are darker, some are lighter. The, the lines are a little straighter or curvier, so everyone's kind of painting reflects their own interpretation of what the instructor was saying along the way, and, and it's all good, right? There is no right or wrong in Pino's palette. <laughs> Everyone does it to their own ability, so no person can hold their painting and look like at the next one and go, mine is right and yours is wrong, That's not the way it goes, again, from what I can tell. But rather, it's just what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. And it's all good. Cheers to a great night out. And it sounds ideal when it comes to art, when it comes to a hobby. It's problematic when that same mentality shifts to and defines how people see God. Problematic because that mentality is so dominant in our culture today that it is um, said to be the most accepting, seemingly most loving view to have when it comes to God, that it is deemed right, that everyone just has their version, interpretation of God, and it best fits them. There's a general kind of divine, spiritual aspect to it that everybody follows, but When you look closely, everyone's is just a little bit different from their own experiences, from their own interpretations, from the way they've been brought up, from the things that they value, and that God is this being that no one can claim they are any more right than you. Right? That's that's our culture today, that, that, that you might have what's right for you, and I have what's right for me, and what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours, and it's all good. Cheers to a great life. And anything other than that, we have come, kind of been conditioned to think that's kind of oppressive. It's oppressive to say something's right and something's wrong. We don't say that. We just, what's yours is yours, what's mine is mine. It's a dangerous thing 
when people think they can define God on their own terms. It's dangerous for many reasons, but namely because how we live our lives will be affected by what we believe or don't believe about God. Right? We cannot separate the two. How you live exposes what you believe or don't believe about God. And, and it's dangerous ultimately, um, not just for um, how you live, but eternity hangs in the balance. We're in the midst of our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we um, have just come off a string of weeks where we witnessed the power of Jesus being put on display just in several ways, right? I mean, just weeks and weeks of just Jesus, his power reigning over all. His, his power is ferocious enough to overcome storms and, and demons, and, and yet his power is tender enough to have compassion, to, to heal disease, to, to raise little children from the dead. And so it's just been scene after scene of Jesus winning, right? Jesus succeeding everywhere he goes. People are just marveling at him, responding in faith with everything that he has done. And that has just been several weeks now, what we've just seen in the Gospel of Mark. But this morning, we turn to chapter 6. And there is a noticeable shift in chapter 6. You see, lest his disciples or anybody like us who come after and read this get this idea that if you just follow Jesus, everything turns to gold, everything's going to work out, there's going to be no trouble, it's just going to be winning, winning, winning. We have chapter 6. There's a change in the wind this morning. And we're going to be covering the first 13 verses and so let's get going. Uh, at the outset, we're going to read a little bit at a time and then unpack it as we go. So we're just going to start with the first two verses of Mark 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Well, the transition gets rooted in the first few words. We read, he went away from there, right? There is what we talked about last week, what we assumed to be Capernaum, and he just came from a place where he raised a 12-year-old girl to life. Capernaum is this port village that served as his base of operations, just the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And, and all throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus is always coming and going, right? He goes, he does some really crazy, awesome things, and then he leaves. And he goes to another village, and he works for a while, does some mighty acts, and then he leaves again. And I'm sure there's many reasons why he does so, but, but one of which is the fact that when he does these mighty acts, these crowds are just obsessing over him. I mean, I mean, just, and, and that is going to become a problem if it's not, if he doesn't just kind of slip out of town because people are just really starting to um, uh, obsess and just marvel at him. And then all of a sudden you have some of these Pharisees who are not liking him. And so he just decides when a crowd swells, he's just going to slip out of town. And especially coming off the fact that this was his most impactful, powerful miracle yet, he just raised the girl to life. And I think he knew that this was going to set things off once words started to go around. And so he decides we're going to go take a trip to my hometown. This would be the village of Nazareth. It's about 30 to 40 miles southwest of Capernaum, right? So he, he disciples go with them, and they're walking by foot, all right? Probably takes a couple of days to get there. No rest stops with Panera or Holiday Inns along the way. So they uh, just kind of get there as fast as they can. And, and everything seems normal at the outset, 
The, 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 the pattern is similar to everywhere else he has gone at the beginning. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he begins to teach, as was his custom, we're told. And his teaching, as we saw in chapter 1, all throughout the gospel, kind of follows the same outline of, of the kingdom of God is at hand. And repent and believe in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins, right? He's revealing just the good news and opportunity and offer to these people. And he's giving, he's opening up the scriptures, and he's kind of reinterpreting the Old Testament scriptures, showing that they point to a Messiah because the scribes and the teachers of that time, they've just gotten it so wrong. And so he's reinterpreting, and then so people um, hear this, and then again, their response is like it's always been. We read they're astonished. It's common wherever he went. But from here, things start to turn. We find things are a little bit different in Nazareth than the other places. You see, Jesus is in his hometown so you know what you would expect, just kind of reading along after the first couple of verses? You'd expect that Jesus was coming home as a hometown hero, right? Jesus put Nazareth on the map. It, it was a no-name town. It's mentioned nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in ancient Jewish literature is anywhere Nazareth mentioned. It was thought to have a population of maybe 150 to 200 people. Small, little, nowhere town, and here comes Jesus out of Nazareth. So you'd think, man, they're probably pumped he's coming home, right? Because Jesus really hit it big. He made a name for our town, and now he's coming home. Heroes welcome. But no. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through 6. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except they laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. The fact that they knew Jesus did not elevate their worship and praise for him. It actually did the direct opposite. They heard him, and they saw him, and they took offense at him. Wait a minute. Isn't this Mary's kid? How is he doing these things? Where did he learn all these things? Surely he's not capable of all this. He's just the carpenter. By the way, no offense to any carpenters in the room, all right? I'm actually very impressed with you, but not in Nazareth, all right? So he, he, he's just a carpenter. What, where did he get all these things? What's really going on here? There's a well-known phrase that perhaps you've heard of. Familiarity breeds contempt. What that phrase means is that it is possible. It is at times even common to be so closely associated with someone that you lose respect for them and actually begin to resent them when they start to hit it big. So someone you knew before they were famous, right? Or, or before they were well-known, and, and then they hit it big, and, and you're not happy for them. But, but rather, you've been so close to them, you begin to resent them because now they're a big shot, and you're still living in Nazareth. And that's what's going on here. His hometown people, which includes his own household, 
Praise God for his own house that would not remain this way, but at this point, his own household rejecting them. They are choosing to not believe, choosing to not to be impressed. They have come up with their own version of what the Messiah was going to look like, and it ain't looking like Jesus. We remember Jesus. He's just one of us. We grew up with him. And so they're offending everything, they're offended by everything, they're rejecting everything they see. They have already decided who Jesus was and what he was capable of, and therefore nothing was going to change it, right? They made up their minds. Why have their minds been made up? Well, it's because of their experience, and their experience with Jesus. He's, he's the carpenter, he's, he's Mary's son, he's James's brother, his sisters are literally right here. It's just Jesus. So the idea that he could be a savior, that he could be this kind of teacher, that he could do these kind of things, that he can open the scripture, that he was with us growing up learning, that now he is teaching in this way, and that he claims to have this good news for Israel? No, that can't happen. And so as a result, Jesus just calls it as he sees it. A prophet receives no honor from his hometown. In doing so, he compares himself to the prophets of the Old Testament, the, the men who came from within Israel who were appointed by God to, to remind the people of God's promises and to warn them of God's judgment if they do not repent and turn back to him. Men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Habakkuk and Hosea and Isaiah and others and all the other Isaiahs, all right? And like Jesus, they're all rejected by their own people. They wouldn't receive the message. They would go on doing whatever they wanted because they had decided for themselves who God was. I get to decide who God is, and it doesn't look like that. And they molded God to fit their interests and so that they can keep going about their own sinful desires. This is an age-old problem. It happened all throughout Israel's History, it's happening in Jesus' time. Brothers, sisters, it's happening today. Well, that can't be the way God acts. That can't be the way it is. I know what God is supposed to be like. And we mold them and we shape them to fit to what would best fit with our own interests and desires. And then Mark tells us something fascinating. As a result of their rejection, Jesus could do no mighty work there. It's fascinating because we know it's not that Jesus physically couldn't do anything. You remember what Mark just talked about for over and over again? Nothing holds Jesus down. There is nothing he can't do. That power was on display all throughout chapter 5. He has power over all. So it's not that Jesus couldn't do physical mighty acts. It means that he won't. And he won't do it without the presence of faith. Think about why Mark is putting this back to back from last week. Remember last week um, in Capernaum you had Jairus and you had the bleeding woman. And, and in both those cases we were told they displayed a bold faith in Jesus and in his divine power. And it led to mighty works being done. Jesus commended them for their faith. But here where faith is absent... Where divine power is not met with bold faith, there is no work to be done. They reject it, and therefore they resist the mighty transformative power and love of Jesus. Last week, Jesus said, do not fear, 
only belief. And this week, he says, he's just marveled at their unbelief. We'll see why Jesus has brought his disciples to witness this in a moment. But first, I just want to probe a little bit here. It is vital that Jesus is seen and heard for who he really is. And not basely on our terms. Not sold basely on our terms. Do do you know what I mean by that? That if we are going to accept or reject Jesus, let's be sure it's the real Jesus who as he's been revealed in his word and not the Jesus that we have decided who he is based upon our experiences. So two questions that will cover everybody in this room. If you have rejected faith in Jesus Christ, meaning you have not entrusted your life to him, you've not repented of your sin and sought the forgiveness of God that can only come through him, my question is, have you resisted surrendering to the real Jesus? Or another Jesus? The real Jesus who's existed for all of eternity, who through whom and by whom and for whom all things were made. The the Jesus who came not to cater to the righteous, but to offer restoration to the sick. The Jesus who came to teach and disciple men and women about life in the kingdom of God. Where the lowly will be raised up. Where the prideful will be torn down. Where we ought to love and serve all people, especially the least of these. That Jesus? And the Jesus, most importantly, who took on flesh and became a man so that he could lay his life down for those who put their faith in him and and provide reconciliation to the Father for all of eternity and forgive sin and brokenness. And finally, the Jesus who was raised from the dead, ensuring that he paid our price of sin in full and declared victory over death forever. Is that the Jesus you were resisting? The answer might still be yes. But I would just encourage you to be sure you are rejecting Jesus as he revealed himself. And not merely based upon how poorly some people who call themselves Christians seem to be at following him. There's a lot of people out there, sometimes people that are ourselves, that are really bad at following Jesus. Don't let bad followers of Jesus blind you to the real Jesus. That's the first question. Second would be for those who are following Jesus. Praise God, have, um, have, have been forgiven through the life and death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our, my, my question is similar. Are, are you sure you're a follower of the actual Jesus? As he's revealed himself in his word and not a Jesus that you've created in your own image. This is important. Are you following the same Jesus who called on those who would come after him to carry their cross and endure the persecution that will follow? The Jesus who has not promised health and wealth and prosperity, just everything's going to go well for you once you're on his team. But in many times, it's actually the direct opposite where he's the one who's going to lead you into some suffering for his glory and your joy. The Jesus who's followers is not just another word for being American. Where the cross and the flag seem intertwined as if the U.S. is his chosen nation. And likewise, the Jesus who's not affiliated with one political party and cannot be claimed by any one candidate. 
The Jesus who came to claim men and women from every nation, where all are equal at the foot of the cross. Who, who, the Jesus who doesn't save us because of what family we were born into. He doesn't save us because of how awesome and good we are. But the Jesus who came and laid down his life because we are not awesome. And finally, the Jesus who calls us to live lives of holiness. To live lives of obedience in accordance to how he designed the world. Mind, body, and soul were all his. Is this the Jesus you're following? You see, everybody in this room will either reject or trust in Jesus. So let us be sure it's the true Jesus. As revealed in his word and not one that we craft in our own minds. Eternity depends upon it. And where bold faith intersects with divine power, miracles happen. Watch him work. And where blatant rejection denies divine power, nothing happens. Watch him walk. Okay. Jesus brought his disciples here for a reason, saw this mess of a time of teaching and rejection. Why did he bring them there? Let's read Mark 6, 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Throughout our trek in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen how Mark does this kind of masterful job of of presenting Jesus as both our Savior and our example. He's our Savior from sin and darkness and death. And then upon trusting in him, he becomes our example in life. It's not just for something after we die, that Jesus has come to restore and renew and deploy us right now in life. And so these 12 who have come with them, he's come to save them. That's his primary purpose, to lay down his life for those who are following him. But he also wants to disciple and teach them. That's why he spends three years with them. And now at this point in the ministry, he sends them out to do their own ministry for the first time. Once someone responds to the true revelation of Jesus Christ by faith, they are to be discipled and equipped to be sent out for Christ. This is the purpose of discipleship. This is in many ways the purpose and one of the primary purposes of the local church. To raise men and women up, to not just watch ministry, but to equip them to do the work of the ministry, to equip and to send. And this passage provides some really valuable insight into what it means to be a follower of Christ that is living out the calling we've been given. The calling to go and make disciples. And so I encourage you to really dial in what principles we're getting out of this passage because this applies to us. This applies to everyone. And and I want to say at the outset that, that all aspects of the apostles' training and instruction and gifts do not apply to us 
I do think the believers uh, were given a level of authority that uh, was unique for their time to spark the movement of the church, but, but we would be wise to extract principles behind Jesus' command and apply them to our lives as we play a part in advancing God's kingdom. So with that said, here's five principles. Okay, five principles of living out the Christ-centered mission to make disciples, and yes, they will be quick. I know there's at least one of you right now, like, really, Pastor? Five points starting right now. Like, we're, we're, we're doing that. Like, yes, and they will be quick, all right? And they are, again, massively important to what it looks like to faithfully live out our calling. Even if you're not a note-taker, I would encourage you to write these down somewhere and use them as a way to lay down on top of your life. Number one, no lone rangers. There's no lone rangers. Verse 7, he began to send them out two by two. You want to say, okay, maybe that was just for practical reasons, right? There's lesser chance of getting jumped by some guys if, if, if they were by themselves. But, but also, it's Jesus just showing them this built-in community that comes along as a spurring-on effect. Two by two, a natural encouragement that they were on mission together. Church, this is objective support for the power and importance of a church community in the Christian life. And it's hard because you know the people who probably need to hear this most right now? They're not here because we're in church. But perhaps some of you are, and maybe nobody else knows that you're hanging on by a thread. Maybe you're about done with church. Let me just encourage and exhort you from this passage that church community is not just a benefit. It's not just an add-on. It's not just for those who are struggling. It is for everybody. Jesus could have sent them out 12 different ways, couldn't he? He could have covered more villages probably if they went 12 directions instead of six. But they go out two by two because he knows that people do more effective ministry together than alone. When we are alone, we are more prone to being picked off by our spiritual enemy. We sin more in isolation. We are easily discouraged when we're isolated. We're more quickly defeated, and, and, and our saltiness and our brightness are diluted and dimmed when we are by ourselves. And we become useless to the advancement of the kingdom. And you cannot and will not sustain a faithful, vibrant life of faith if you do it alone. And not only that, but you also will not now have a part in a role in supporting and encouraging others and motivating others with your gifts and your presence if you're alone. All right, that's people's number one reason. I don't need the church. Okay, what if the church needs you? What if they need something only you can bring? And the way God has gifted you to pour into people that, that well, first of all, you do need the church, but also the church needs you. The church is up, me and you together, a family of people that are living out God's calling together. And so I just want to ask, how does the work of making disciples within the context of a church fit into your view of faith? Your faith is private, but it is not, your faith is personal, it is not private. And if it is just about you and what you believe, and okay, now I'm good because I have a relationship with God, I just, I love you, but you're missing it. You're missing what all God has for you and to do work through you to bring good news to others and encourage them in the process. So that's number one, no lone rangers. Number two, God-given authority. 
God-given authority. Jesus, in sending them out, gave these 12 authority over disease and demons that only can come from him and to drive them both out in tandem with their teaching just as Jesus was doing. For this is the first display of the people of God carrying forward the ministry, the first uh, visual of, of men and women being the hands and feet of Christ. The authority will be reiterated again at the Great Commission just before Jesus' ascension when he says to them, as recorded in Matthew 28, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And he ends that commission with a reminder that I will be with you always until the end of the age. This authority of Jesus that by his grace and mercy he gives to his people. And this is unbelievably important for you and I. That by believing in him we can have assurance that we have authority over the spiritual realm. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 11, That the same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe. This is not our authority that we cook up and deploy. It does not come from us. It comes from outside of us. It is a gift, and it is God-given, and it is the primary weapon we have to carry out our calling and push back the darkness. So if you're like me, you'll be sitting in your seat going, okay, so I can just heal someone's disease and drive out demons, right? What's the password for that one? All right, how do I tap into that? Uh, again, I believe these 12 were given unique abilities that were appointed for their time and place, but the principle of authority over evil and an assurance to play a part in pushing back the darkness are still very much available to all of us. For one, it's available to, through us in prayer. And you go, yeah, yeah, I know that, but what else can I do? Don't overlook the power of prayer. God loves to shine light into the darkness through the witness and prayer of his people. He heals through prayer. He drives out evil through prayer. He brings wisdom and clarity and compels us to move in prayer. Oh, church, if we could just know the power of prayer and see what God can do through the faithful prayers of his saints. And then it's available to us to step into spaces where we serve and love and help the least of these the darkness that descends in our culture that God has called the church to be a light and push it back, where we can play a part in pushing back against systemic injustices, both locally and globally. So we have no lone rangers. We have God-given authority. And then number three, God-dependent faith. Verse eight, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. He wanted them to travel light. There were practical reasons, again, I'm sure, but also he wanted them to focus their dependence on him and not their stuff. Just like we don't underestimate the power of prayer, do not underestimate the power of faith. Faith of just a mustard seed, Jesus will later tell his disciples, will be enough to move mountains. And this truth is crucial for a church like us in Bergen County in 2018. We are so prone to trust in our own provisions and trust in our own gifts and our own equipment and our own strategies because we're pretty smart and we're pretty rich and we have man-made means to do God's work and if we're not careful, we will put faith on the back burner while we put our own means before it. So just to keep it simple, 
Are our lives and plans nimble enough, and is our faith strong enough to move if God tells us to move? God can use Grace Church. God doesn't hate money. He uses it and deploys it for the advancement of his kingdom. God does not hate gifts, but they can become God's very quickly. Is our faith strong enough to move when God tells us to move? Let's travel light, church. Let's let bold, radical, God-dependent faith lead out in front of us and be the key to seeing God at work in the advancement of his kingdom through Grace Church. That's number three. Number four, perseverance through rejection. Verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet. Okay, so here's where these two passages come together this morning. Here's why we're looking at uh, both Jesus in Nazareth and then Jesus deploying his disciples at the same time. Jesus intentionally brought his disciples to his hometown to show them that even he gets rejected. People even hear him and don't believe. And so they should expect the same will happen to them. Here's the kicker to that experience in Nazareth. Are you ready? That wasn't his first trip to his hometown. It's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we read of it, but he has been there before and it did not go well. In Luke chapter 4, you can read it. We're told that Jesus first went back to Nazareth after his time of being tempted in the desert by Satan, just as his earthly ministry was beginning. And before he called his 12 disciples, he went home and it did not end well. They initially were impressed with his teaching and kind of were astonished. We're like, whoa, Jesus is back and he's doing some crazy things. But they quickly began to hate him for it. And you can go read it in Luke 4. He actually had to escape town because they were planning to throw him off a cliff. And yet, now he goes back. And he returns to Nazareth with with his 12 disciples. He knew this was going to be their response again. But he wanted to show his disciples that not everybody's going to believe. Some are going to reject you for it. Some are going to hate you for it. Because that's oppressive. That's not right to believe like that and to tell others to. He wanted them to see before they were sent out that some are going to hear the message and they're going to see all the good they're doing and all the love and the healing and the power of driving out demons and they're still just going to go, nah, it can't happen. I don't believe it. And, and Jesus says, brothers, it's going to happen. And when it does, you just got to move on. It doesn't mean you stop caring about them. It doesn't mean you stop praying for them. It doesn't mean it's the last time you're ever going to witness to them. It means that you don't need to condemn those you're trying to reach. We are called to share the truth, to, to be witnesses, to love and serve where we can and love, leave the rest to God to do the work. We don't need to take offense when somebody rejects the truth. Because if we're rejected, it's okay. Jesus said that's going to happen. Scott Sauls, he's a pastor and an author. He wrote a book called Jesus Outside the Lines. In his introduction, he says this, when the grace of Jesus sets in, we will be the, among the least offended and most loving people in the world. Is that true of you? Because so often of Christians, you know what? It's the exact opposite. 
we can tend to be the most offended and the least loving people in the world. But when the grace of Jesus sets in, we ought to be the least offended and the most loving people in the world. That's number four. Fifth, and finally, church, proclaim the message. Proclaim the message. This, in many ways, while the final command is the one that blankets all the others. The reason we're sent out in community two by two. The reason we're given authority to push back the darkness. The reason we need radical faith. And the reason we persevere through rejection is so that we can faithfully proclaim the message. The message that Jesus gave from the beginning, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the Messiah has arrived, that the good news is made available to all people, that Jesus has come to offer new life and forgiveness, and we can receive it through a repentance of sin and trusting in him. This is our calling, to trust in the true God by putting our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has truly revealed to us by his word, and upon following him to commit to the work of being equipped and sent out to proclaim his message to a world that desperately needs it. This is our calling. The world will tell you that everyone gets to decide who God is for themselves. The world will tell you what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours and it's all good, just like Pino's palate. But church, we have a better message. That the one true God who created all things has made a way for us to be reconciled to himself simply because of his grace. Where he has made a way that people can be freed from the bondage of sin. Can be freed from God's holy judgment that will last for all of eternity, and the way out is through the death and resurrection of his son, freely given for you. So our message is not what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. Our message is that what is mine can be what's yours by faith. And where faith meets divine power, miracles happen. Watch them work. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the praise and glory this morning for what you have done in making a way through your Son, what you have done of raising up men and women over the last 2,000 years to proclaim this message faithfully, to love and serve a world well that they're trying to reach. Father, give us the courage, give us the faith to play our part. And Father, let us see you for who you really are, let today be the day of salvation for somebody in this room where somebody for the first time says, Father, I repent of my sin, of trying to do it my own way, and I put my faith and trust in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who are in that place, we give you glory for it, and we pray again that you would give us the courage to live out our calling well and let, it do it, let us do it for your glory. It's in the name you pray, amen.